want to encourage you to take that Bible that you're holding or there's some under every third seat in our worship auditorium and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It actually covers all the way through verse 1 down through verse 58 and somewhat unique, the entire chapter is given to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Certainly, if you've been in Christ for any amount of time, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is really a a focal point of our faith. In fact, if your Bible is open, look down at verse 3 when Paul said there, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the Gospel. You can see it there that He died, was buried, and on the third day He rose from the dead. Whatever we want to say about the gospel, there is a statement of the gospel right there in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. But what's fascinating about this text is that some in the Corinthian church were denying the bodily resurrection from the dead. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we we know that because Paul said some were in denial. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some people in the Corinthian church that were denying the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. But because the resurrection is so central to our faith, obviously it became the the target, if you will, of false prophets, both in that time and even throughout the the centuries. I mean, if the resurrection is taken away, as we've sung this morning, then certainly the gospel is false, and Paul will go on to say that we're most to be pitied of all. And so when you open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, the theme of it is the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of men from the grave. Now, what's going to be almost counterintuitive, we won't hang our hats on it the whole time, is that in verses 12 down through 19, he describes what happens to the gospel if you deny the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, He's going to show us the horrendous results of what would happen. In fact, if you look at verse 13, he says there, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if there's no resurrection, then he himself did not raise, if you will, on that third day. So as we track here, his argument will fly high in verses 13 through 19, he gives six horrendous results of denying the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. In other words, if this can't be affirmed, then all is lost. But he doesn't finish there because if you glance with your eyes down to verse 20, but in fact, as Shea has read, Christ has been raised from the dead. So we'll get down to that. But let's look at these horrendous results if you deny the resurrection. The first horrendous result is that our preaching would be in vain. Our preaching would be in vain. Look again at verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, verse 14, has not been raised, then our preaching, Paul says, is in vain. In other words, if he didn't rise from the dead, preaching and the content of that preaching and the substance of that preaching is useless. It would be as to say that the the message is useless. The gospel message, you would reason with me and from the scripture, is about the resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, then there's no gospel message And therefore, there is nothing to preach. Preaching would be in vain. The message would be irrevocably lost. It would be folly. I mean, beloved, I think Paul's arguing here, if Christ did not conquer sin, if he didn't conquer death, if he didn't conquer hell, then why preach? I mean, if there's no resurrection, then what am I doing this morning? What is every faithful preacher doing this morning if he didn't rise from the dead when you deny the resurrection here he said our preaching would be in vain in fact I would submit to you why even gather this morning you say well we'd gather because we just worshiped and probably a number of you were in tears and the tears are because the truth and the lyrics of those songs resonate with the word of God But why gather? I mean, if Christ didn't conquer sin and death by virtue of his resurrection, preaching would be void of truth. It would be void of reality. It would be void of power. Now, of course, not everybody believes that. Not everybody who steps in the pulpit today across the globe is going to affirm that. You say, what do you mean? Well, I can quote you from one pastor, prominent pastor, Some years back, he said this, and I'm just quoting him, not sure how he stands up and preaches. He said, and these are his words, I suggest that we confess openly that the resurrection is a myth. He says, this is not to say that it is not true, (laughs) which he must be very confused. It's a myth, but it's not to say that it's not true. He said, on the contrary, to say that the resurrection is a myth is to say that it represents the deepest kind of truth. To say that the resurrection is a myth is to acknowledge that it is not clear what happened historically when the Bible describes Jesus as being raised from the dead. In other words, it's a great story. He didn't really have to physically rise it's a it's a truth for your own resurrection of your life is really what he's trying to say he says it means that we do not have to believe quote in the literal truth in any of the biblical accounts of the resurrection 
To say that the resurrection is myth is to recognize it as a symbol of transcendent truth more than a historical fact. And as a symbol of the resurrection, that means that God's truth is open-ended. God's word is not something spelled out and nailed down in the literature. So this is what, this is a little bit about what Paul's saying. There's some people who were denying this. But if you deny this, he's saying that the preaching is void of truth, void of reality, void of power. But not only would preaching be in vain, secondly, our faith would be in vain. Our faith would be in vain. If you will, look at verse 14. It says there, if it's He's not raised, then our preaching is in vain, and the end of 14, and your faith is in vain. I mean, if preaching is in vain, then obviously putting your faith in a dead man would be equally futile. I mean, if the gospel is bogus, then so is the faith that it produced. Glance down in verse 17, he says something similar there. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is, he said right there, futile. It's useless. In other words, there's, there's no objective content to faith. Preaching is empty, and your faith is empty as well. I mean, if that was the case, then we would say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 13, surely in vain. Have I kept my heart pure? Remember when he was going through that soliloquy? And, and he, he looked at wicked, the wicked prospering and he cried out to the Lord, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In other words, for nothing. Here's a horrendous reality. That would mean men like Noah, I mean just track it out, would be an utter fool for 120 years spending his life building a massive ark for nothing. What a loaded waste of his own energy because your faith would be in vain. It would mean that if you begin to look at the heroes of the faith, Abraham, if you begin to include Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, who was son in two, Daniel, Jeremiah, they all had faith, an empty faith, in a God who couldn't pull off the salvation that he planned if he didn't rise. In other words, your preaching would be in vain. Your faith would be in vain. In fact, it wouldn't just be the heroes of faith. That would include all the saints. If you went back to the heroes in Hebrews chapter 11, many of whom were stoned, some were sawn in two. We believe that was Isaiah. They were put to death with the sword. I mean, why? They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. It says that some of those heroes of the faith were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men from whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. For what? I mean, if he didn't rise from the dead... Paul is articulating in a counterintuitive way, then your faith is in vain. Furthermore, all those people who through faith held on to God's promises were foolish if Christ had not been raised from the dead. But you can go on. All the martyrs in our own day are examples of useless faith. 
And so are we if there's no resurrection. I think Patty and I were talking about five men who I believe were in Poland. Is that right, Patty? On their way to bring relief to people in Ukraine. And they were all killed, these five men. I'm not sure if they were pastors or just men. And they were killed trying to get food to people. I mean, why? I mean, is it all lost without the resurrection? But here he's just saying if you deny the resurrection, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Thirdly, thirdly, here's the third horrendous result. Our witnesses would be false. Our witnesses would be false. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Look at verse 15. We, Paul is saying, probably the we, the apostles, are even found to be misrepresenting God. He said, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised, our witnesses, namely the apostles, would be false. They were misrepresenting God. If Jesus Christ didn't come forth from the dead, then the apostles preached a false gospel. In essence, Paul said that we'd be liars, that we'd be imposters. The apostles certainly, as we know it, declared Christ to be risen from the dead. But if Christ was not raised, they would be false witnesses to an event that never took place. Paul is saying we'd be charlatans. We'd be showmen. It's a a drastic thought. And if the apostles and prophets lied about the resurrection, then I'm just saying to you, then why believe the rest of the New Testament. I mean, the truth is, is that the New Testament rises and falls on their apostolic witness. But if you deny the resurrection, preaching's in vain, our faith is in vain, our witnesses are false. Fourthly, here's the fourth horrendous result, is that our sins remain unforgiven. I mean, if he didn't rise, then think about it. You're still in your sins. You say, how so? Well, look at the text, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, logically, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and, here's the point, you are still in your sins. In other words, our sins remained unforgiven. If Christ didn't conquer sin, then sin conquered him. And if sin conquered him, then as you sit, you're still dead in your sins. Beloved, if Christ is not raised from the grave, he is dead. And a dead Christ is unable to justify uh, anybody, right? And an unjustified believer remains in their sins. You remain engulfed in your sins. If Christ beloved, remained under the power of death, how could he deliver you from the power of death? Beloved, if he didn't rise, then sin killed him. And if sin killed him, you're still, I'm still in my sin. If Christ had not been raised, you would still, just think about it, still be bearing the guilt of your sin 
you would still be under condemnation for your sin. You would presently be alienated from God, still unforgiven. And if you deny the resurrection, it's a horrendous result. But there's a fifth marker there, okay? A fifth horrendous effect. I'll put it this way, that our deceased loved ones have perished. Our deceased loved ones have perished. You say, what what is he saying here? Well, look at the text in verse 18. It says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, here's the word, have perished. You say, what do you mean sleep? Well, sleep in the New Testament is often an expression of death. And if Christ has not been raised then those who have died in their sleep, if you will, or have went to death, are not with Him, and their bodies have perished. That's what here Paul is saying. I mean, if Christ did not rise from the dead, all those, and you know He doesn't mean this, but all those who have perished have perished forever. What this would mean is that all your loved ones who have trusted in Christ would remain unforgiven. They would be lost forever. They would perish forever. They would be doomed forever. They would be doomed to hell. It would be occupied by the apostle Peter in hell. Paul, John, Luther, Moody, Amy Carmichael, Elizabeth Elliot, your godly grandmother, your godly grandfather, your godly great-grandmother and great-grandfather who trusted Christ, who made sacrifices for you, who spent money on you, who placed faith on you, who, you know, caused you to know the scripture, they've perished forever. I mean, this is, this is where Paul's going in his logic, This is a huge doctrine, is it not? But then finally, sixth, if you deny the resurrection, our faith is to be pitied. Look at verse 19. If if in Christ we have hope, watch this line, verse 19. In this life only, Paul said, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Christ didn't rise... I'm just, I'm trying to catch this. I've been doing this 33 years. But if Christ didn't rise, then I've wasted my life for 33 years, and obviously that's not true. But imagine all the believers you know fighting against temptation, suffering reproach for the name, giving oodles of their money to advance the kingdom It would all be for naught if Christ had not risen. Paul is actually saying we are fools if Christ is not raised. I mean, whatever you do, and I'm being facetious, don't choose the narrow road. I mean, whatever you do, don't buffet your body and make it your slave, lest possibly after you've preached to others, you yourself would be disqualified. I mean, why take up the cross Your faith, this is what he's saying, you would be pitied, you'd be foolish, if you will. I mean, 1 Corinthians, if you look at it down the chapter in verse 32, 
I'm, you know, this is a, a unique phrase. What do I gain, Paul says in 32, if humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus. Now, I don't think he's talking about fighting lions and tigers and hyenas. We were just at the zoo the other day. I think he's talking about the beast of the false teachers there. There were high-powered aorists, if you will, in the church at Ephesus. And Paul had to regularly fend them off. And that's why he gave us the book of uh, Ephesians. But then look what he says at the end of 32, verse 32. If the dead are not raised, here's what he said. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I think he's just saying there, you think eat and drink, is he talking about partying? No, no. He's just saying, carry on with your life. Just go about your life. Just keep eating, just drinking. Nothing happens beyond that if Christ has not rised. You've played the fool. It's pointless. I mean, if the dead are not raised, I mean, I'm just asking, why would Paul have pummeled his body the way he did? Why would he have taken five whippings of 39 lashes to have the skin on his back filleted right off with those whips and scourges? Why would he endure three beatings with rods? I mean, why not just eat, drink, and be merry? I mean, why would he risk his life in Corinthians against robbers and cities and angry mobs? Why would he accept sleepless nights? Why would he go into the cold and exposure? It'd be, you'd be pitied, he'd say. So if you deny the resurrection, here's what he's saying. Preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. Our witnesses are false. Our sins are unforgiven. Our deceased loved ones have perished, and our faith is to be pitied. It's horrendous. Now, beloved, I can't finish there because the text doesn't finish. We know that not to be the case. Look at verse 20. It's an amazing transition. But, it's almost like but God in Ephesians 2, 5. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? He's raised from the dead. This is the testimony of the Scripture. So let me just state the Lord's resurrection in light of six incredible gifts that he gives to you. And I'll fly high here, okay? The first gift is because of the resurrection, verse 20, our preaching is powerful. I mean, I'm not just doing a lesson up here. This matters. This is how people came to faith. This is why we're training men here at the Master's Seminary to go across the globe because preaching makes a difference, because teaching makes a difference. And here, because of the resurrection, as Aaron spoke this morning at our sunrise breakfast, there's power, if you will, in preaching. In fact, the validation of everything that Jesus said and did was predicated on whether he came out of the grave. And it says that he has been raised, and so preaching is powerful. Listen, as a young man, I'm marked by verses like this by John the Apostle, a witness, when he said, when I saw him in that vision, I fell at his feet like a dead man. 
And he placed his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. And the risen, resurrected Jesus said, I am the first. I am the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive. What? Forevermore. He has been raised. And so here, our preaching is powerful. He said, I have the keys of death and Hades. Don't let anybody take that away if you've lost a loved one in the last year, in the last two years, in the last three years. Jesus Christ is holding the keys by virtue of his power of the resurrection. And he has that over both Hades, he says there, and death itself. Paul said in Romans 1.4 that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection. In other words, the power comes in preaching because he said he would die, he did die, he said he would be raised, and he did, and he was raised. There's hope. Paul said in Romans 14.9, to this end Christ died, he lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. So our preaching has power. You can pray for me. We'll get on a flight tomorrow to go be with one of our missionaries in Dubai. And I'm teaching a class there at the Gulf Theological Seminary. But, you know, as you go, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me that I could be faithful to these students that are gathering in Dubai from literally all over the globe? But listen, it has power. That's why we have missionaries. That's why we plant missionaries, because it's powerful. But secondly, our faith has purpose. Our preaching is powerful. Our faith has purpose. In what sense? John 14, 19, because Jesus said, I live... You will live also. I believe Jesus. Because I live, you will live also. Because I've beaten sin, death, Satan himself, and I've rendered him powerless by virtue of my death and resurrection, he says, you will live also. Jesus said in John 5, 25, to this end, John said it this way, Christ died and lived again that he might be both Lord of the living and the dead. But in 525, he said, I say to you, an hour is coming, now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will what? Live. We're alive now. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that we know him, but the day will come at the second coming uh, when we will also get a brand new body. So I love that phrase there when it says that those who hear will live. Thirdly, though, here's the third gift. Our witnesses are not false. Our witnesses are pure, or our witness is pure. I mean, this is what it says in Acts 2.32. This Jesus, God, you have these statements all over, rose up again, to which the apostles said, we are all, what? Witnesses. You can trust them. So how do I know? They wrote it down. I can take you to 11 guys who after his resurrection, far from leaving that faith called Christianity, all gave their life to it. All were, if you will, martyred for their faith. The only one we see at the end is the apostle John, 
But they all, according to church history, were martyred, and they're all witnesses. They saw him. They touched him. So how does a pastor then say that it really doesn't matter? It does matter. And it matters because of the witnesses that are pure. Listen to Acts 4.1. Love this. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In other words, the witnesses are true. In fact, look back in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember this? It's not just the apostolic witnesses. But look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, it's Peter, and then to the twelve, not Judas, but Matthias. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive when Paul wrote Corinthians, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and then Paul says this, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also, what, to me. Say, when did he appear to Paul? I think you know in Acts, was it nine on the Damascus road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. He had a, 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 just a physical sight, and so did all the apostles, far from them being false. Be careful of who you think is true and who is false. I remember sharing my faith one time with a, a girl. I was down on the campus at, in Westwood at UCLA, and... Uh, in fact, Patty, I think it was the night before we got married. We went, the groomsmen, uh, we went down to Westwood and we began to witness. And I got engaged, maybe I've told you this, with a young woman about the veracity and the truthfulness of Scripture. I said, this is what the Word says. This is what Jesus says. This is what the gospel says. What will you do with that? And I remember her telling me, she says, I really don't think the apostles were very inspired men. I said, well, then who were they? She said, I think they were a bunch of men that were high on magic mushrooms and just wrote the stuff down that came to their mind. So what she did is she blew off apostolic witness. But I just want you to know, how do we blow that off? They held him. They touched him. They ate with him. That it was... The Lord. And they're the ones who are giving apostolic truthfulness to who he was. And then there's beyond them 500 witnesses at one time. Beloved, trust these witnesses far from being false. They're pure. Fourthly, not only uh, would it be horrendous to have our sins for unforgiven, but here our sins are pardoned. Our sins are pardoned. And you know that. They're forgiven. Past, present, future, all based and validated on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Glory be to God. In fact, if you go back to 15.4, it says there in 15.4, or in, in 15.3, excuse me, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. 
He died and forgave your sins based on all of his promises. And one of those promises was his death and resurrection. Listen, beloved, Christ's death paid the penalty for our sins. His death satisfied the justice of God. The resurrection validates our forgiveness by the simple fact that the grave could not hold him. So our sins are forgiven. In fact, in Acts 5, there it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. Here it is. And the forgiveness of sins. And of course it says, and we are witnesses. In other words, your sins are pardoned. Listen, if you're not in Christ, then you're stuck in the guilt of your sin even as I speak. And I hold out Christ to you who died on that cross that's behind me by symbol and bore the sins of those who would trust in him and he validated that by the resurrection from the dead, if you put your hope and faith and trust in him because you gain the forgiveness of your sins through faith, the channel, which is in Jesus Christ. But you don't gain forgiveness by doing something, by doing good deeds, by coming to church. There's only salvation in one and you have to look for Christ by way of his righteous life, his death, his resurrection, and then he ascended in the book of Acts, and he's there at the right hand as Aaron preached this morning next to God the Father, and he is holding the keys. You say, well, who's in control? Jesus is. You say, what will, what will happen with my destiny? Easy. It's what you do with the person of Christ. But he holds the keys to extend forgiveness. I think you've heard me share my testimony before. But when I got off my knees at 14, I just, I don't even know how to say it. My guilt was gone. My burden was gone. My fear was gone. I was so afraid to live thinking I could die, and that's true. But all I know is when I got off on my knees, he gave me such incredible joy. You say, well, Scott, what is that? Well, I don't know how much I could have articulated that at 14, but in my own heart with my struggle with the gospel and driving to my knees, it was the fact that I knew that all my sin had been forgiven, that all my guilt was gone. That all my sin was wiped out like a thick cloud. That as it says in the Old Testament, my sins were buried into the deepest part of the sea. And I just remember having so much joy that he would do that for me. That he would bear my sin on his back, guilty as I was, and he took that for me. And I just think as I got done off my knees... I just remember being flooded with joy and it's here because my sins were forgiven. They were pardoned. But there's another gift, the fifth gift, that our loved ones, 
They don't perish. We know that Paul's not saying that. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Our loved ones are promised heaven. I mean, mean, right here in this text, the scripture tells us that the sting of death has been what? Taken away. That you feel it, but it's been defanged death. It's been declawed, if you will. The sting of death has been taken away, and Paul speaks, and he said, death is gain. A desire to be with Christ is much better than this life. To live is Christ and to die is what? Is gain. You're not going to perish. You're going to go on into everlasting life. In fact, can I just say this just for a moment? Okay, I don't know who's in here, so I won't look at you. You'd be a fool not to place all your hope in him. I mean, I would pity you, if you will, because here our loved ones haven't perished. They've been promised heaven. You say, well, like in what sense? Well, look down in 15, if you will, verse 52, where it says, in a moment, in a moment, 52, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, here's the promise, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be, what, changed. I love that. If you can handle the language in 53, for this perishable, it's passing away, this perishable, perishable body must put on an imperishable, we'll get a new body, and this mortal, it's just fleshly, must put on immortality. And when this perishable puts on the imperishable in 54, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a promise. Now, some of you, I sat with some of you today, you've lost a loved one, and it's not easy. But they haven't perished, and you know that. They're promised heaven, but it's still hard. Yes, it is hard. You, you say, well, why is, it, why is it still hard? I'll show you. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 26. He says there that the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. In other words, it's the last enemy. It's still an enemy. You may have an ache in your heart even this day of a spouse, of a grandparent, of a friend, of, yes, a child. How does that happen? Well, the last enemy is death. And there's coming a day when there's going to be no more night, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. But that's the future state. But as we live in this one, the sting doesn't mean it is taken away. But there is coming a day where when the last enemy, at the end of the thousand-year reign world, Christ will crush out all sin and in the glorious heavenly future, there's no pain, no sorrow, 
no night, no more, what, tears, which is unbelievable. He's going to wipe them all away by the joy of Christ. But I said all that to say this. You say, well, where does that leave me today? I'm glad you asked that question, okay, because I was thinking of my dad, even this morning, who's in glory. I'll tell you where it leaves you in this auditorium. Look over at 15 and go down to verse 58. And we've quoted this many times over, but now you understand the context. When Paul finishes that great chapter and he says, therefore, those are, those are good words, my beloved brothers, and then he tells you this, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not what? In vain. Listen, everything you do, everything you do as you're full of his spirit is for Christ. All of it matters. Your giving matters. Your kindness matters. Your cup of cold water matters. And you say, what's it based on? It's based on the resurrection. In other words, if we're all going to be changed, he says, listen, be steadfast. Be stable in this truth. Be immovable. Don't stand your ground. Put your cleats in the ground, if you will. And then always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that, that it says in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen? You press forward. You tell others about Christ and what a joy that is. And so we are promised heaven. Promised heaven. Finally, and then we're all done. Our faith is not pitied. Sixth, our faith is prized. Here's a gift of the resurrection. It's prized. Listen, we are the children of God. God is your father. God said that no one's gonna snatch you out of my what? Hand. Jesus said, I'm not going to let you snatch anyone out of my own hand. And the Holy Spirit was given to you as the guarantee of your future salvation. But far from you being pitied, if you're here this morning in Christ, your faith is to be prized. I just saw on a sports app this week. I don't mean this bad on the guy, but Matthew Stafford, the quarterback of the Rams, I think was extended a contract of $160 million. And with his $160 million, he bought two fabulous multi-million dollar homes. I'm not, no comment on Matthew Stafford, but listen, if you've got Christ in this room, you've got more than everybody, amen? If you've got the hope of heaven, you have everything. And for you parents and you grandparents, pour into the next generation of this church so that we understand that we don't need multi-million dollar contracts. We've got the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be raised with a new body. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You, as a believer, are an heir of heaven. 
You get God. You get Christ. You get heaven. You get joy. You get the place of no pain, the place of no sorrow, the place of no tears. Our preaching, Paul says here, is powerful. Our faith has purpose. Our witness is pure. Our sins are pardoned. Heaven is promised to you, and your faith is to be prized. Praise God for that, right? George Jackson, I see you out there, my dear friend. Your precious, sweet light wife is in glory. And all the others who have tracked with Christ are in glory. You say, well, what do I do to this? How important is this? Last statement. Remember when Paul said, if you confess homologeo, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. And believe in your heart, interesting, you know it, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. So vital. Listen, don't let anybody take this from you. It is the, the benchmark. It is the stable position. It is the prize and we're going to keep preaching this. We're not going to go wonky. We're not going to teach it as some transcendent myth. What is that? Listen, I, I believe the apostles, and I know you do too. Listen, our God is good, amen? Listen, if you need help, and we can tell you more about this wonderful Savior, we'll have some counselors right here at the front of the auditorium. But praise God, he rose from the dead, amen? Amen.